So we would be responsible for maintaining a surveillance picture of all of Canada and then reporting that picture to a um, air operations center, which was in Winnipeg. And then if there was any suspicious activity, they would scramble F-18s and then we would provide tactical control to those F-18s to go intercept whatever was happening. Sam went almost straight into the U.S. Air Force from architecture school with a six-month internship at a small architecture firm in Dallas in between. After 10 years in the military, he has been deployed several times and worked at different bases in this country, including one in Canada. He currently does air battle management on AWACS planes and is looking at becoming an architect when he finishes serving his time in the military. All right, friends, 10 colleagues, 10 years is a podcast series where I interview 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. So I sent you the prompt, and I don't know how much you prepped. Most of it's going to be the story of your last 10 years. Okay. That's going to be 75% of it, and then the other 25% I want to focus on school, and we can kind of go in chronological order. Okay. So I think everyone's fascinating we went to school with, and I think it's cool where we've taken what we've learned and how we've developed that into what we do in our careers. Yes. I start off this interview by telling a story about each individual that I remember from school. The story I have for you is actually later in architecture school when you were talking about what you were going to do after you graduated. And I remember you vividly saying, I'll be an architect when I'm 40. Yeah. And I thought that was, it had such foresight and maturity. And I think a lot of people didn't anticipate what their lives were going to be like. And you just had a very clear picture. I remember being shocked that you could wait so long to do something you loved but that you need to go do this other thing first. And I think that speaks a lot about you as a person. Uh, Thanks, yeah. That's still what's happening. That's still what the goal is. (laughs) (laughs) To be an architect when you're 40. You've got some time. Yeah, or maybe even 42. (laughs) Well, we can go into that. The first real question I have is, what was your fairy word? What I mean by this is, fairy's actually a person. He's John Ferry, and he was the studio professor you had directly before or after Rodney Hill, typically. His assignments were notorious because the first day he made all the students select a word that described themselves, and then everything we designed in that studio had to express that particular word. First was a 2D drawing of delicate small ink strokes, then came the 3D cube of shapes, and then, lastly, a house. All had to ultimately express the word, and our colleagues became known for that word. So I thought it would be fun to revisit this topic 10 years later. Oh, my fairy word was determined. Do you think you're still determined? Do you think that, well, let me step back. Do you think that word was good for you during that time? Did it describe you well? 
I don't know. I think maybe it was a little cheesy. I understand the assignment, and I, I don't know, how old were we, like... 18? 19? 19? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 18 or 19. Yeah, so uh, something that I've learned now that we're in our 30s is that 18 is still really young, right? Or at least from my perspective, I felt like I was still really young back then. So I think if I was uh, asked to be introspective about myself today, I probably wouldn't have said something like determined. I would have thought a little bit more about it. Uh, Would you say you're still determined? Yeah, definitely. As we get into this conversation, I'll probably say some stuff that will make it seem like, you know, if I'm talking about myself, there's been a lot of weird, weird things that, you know, just after you get out of college and you enter in a career field, and one that you probably didn't study for, you know, like I didn't study to do what I'm doing now in college, and there wasn't a lot of preparation for for what I'm doing now. So I would say I'm definitely determined to meet that goal of being an architect when I'm 40. I'm determined in some other ways. There's just like a lot of a lot of things in my career that haven't, and this is probably the wrong way of saying it, but they haven't shaken confidence, I guess, but it just kind of make you think, like I never thought I would have been here, you know. Mm-hmm. It was never part of my plan or you know, determination to wind up here. So you just kind of think about that sometimes, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I'd love to go into that a little bit later when we talk more about the last 10 years, but I want to describe for the audience our degree in a very succinct way and because it's a studio-based, project-based curriculum and we spend so much time together as a cohort. And so there's a lot of collaboration. There's kind of a feedback loop created amongst all of us. There's a competitive nature to it, but there's also a deep friendship. And so I would like to hear your version of architecture school if you had to summarize it. I remember it was really tiresome. (laughs) The thing that I remember most about architecture school was just feeling like there was a pressure to be creative, but at the same time, that was really exciting and really fun, too. Being pressured to use design skills, to use your knowledge that you're growing in construction methods and systems. And so there's a lot of pressure. And then, like you said, there's a lot of competition. But I do remember having a lot of fun. It was kind of weird for me being in the Corps of Cadets just because I felt like my daily schedule was a lot different than a lot of other folks. But... It made my studio time a little weird because I had to manage it around uh, some other stuff. But I remember when I was in the studio, it was just really fun being around everybody and looking at what they were doing and thinking, oh, you know, that's really cool. I would have never thought about that. Or I had a, a lot of fun with the design elements when it came to the structures and the systems and doing the math. That was really challenging for me, and I had to get a lot of help to do that stuff. I wish right now that I had done more of that type of stuff. For instance, like if I want to do a project in my house, just being able to think about, well, the electrical should be this or the plumbing should be that and not have to rely on a contractor to help me out in that area. Yeah. Like you said, your time was a little bit different than most and that you were divided pretty significantly between the Corps cadets and your training and that rigor and then the rigor of architecture school and being in studio and putting in the hours in both. They were both time intensive entities. That would be a struggle, I think, for anyone to manage. But I think you did a really good job. Yeah, it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. One of the pinnacles of architecture school 
we almost wear it like a badge of honor is the all-nighter. Mm-hmm. So I've been surveying people about how many they think they pulled during their four years at A&M. I don't know. If I could speak about it more generally, I would say that I remember my sophomore year, I was tired the whole time. And I remember sleeping in the studio a lot. I remember being done with my core activities at around 6.30 p.m. and then going back to the dorm, changing, and then going to the studio almost every night and working until 2 and then falling asleep until about 3.30 and then waking up, working a little bit more, and then going back to the dorm at 4 and then waking up at 5 and starting again. (laughs) Probably running like 10 miles. I was in really good shape sophomore year. That's true. (laughs) What about sophomore year made it challenging than the rest of the time? I think freshman year was just like a nice, easy transition out of high school. It felt a little bit like high school. Sophomore year, the projects were a little bit harder, and the expectations were harder from the professors. It was a sophomore year where we had to do our CAD trainings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I forgot about that studio. I think really hard and spending a lot of hours on the computer. And then... Also having to spend a lot of hours doing cardboard models and stuff like that. Yeah, I just remember sophomore year was a real big struggle for me to manage my time. I actually took the most hours my senior year. I think I took 20 hours in the fall and then 21 hours in the spring. But I remember senior year being my most fun year, feeling like I had more time. Maybe that's because you had it down at that point. I mean, you had three years of managing it and learning how to do that and then you're able to do it a lot better than previous years yeah hopefully that's the reason yeah (laughs) so your all-nighters were more like you put in pretty late nights with some naps in between and then having to go to your core training early in the morning and start over again so not really all-nighters but some pretty significant and close to all-nighter nights well I do remember a couple times yeah I'd be in the studio until basically it was too late for me to get any sleep. So I would just walk back to the quad. I would change and then go to PT. And then I remember a couple days when we had presentations where like after I was done doing core stuff in the morning, I'd go eat breakfast and change back into my uniform and then go back to the studio to get a presentation. I think that happened probably once or twice. There's usually only a few. I mean, you know better than I do, but there's only a few... Corps of Cadet architecture students that make it out and get the degree and stay in the Corps. Yeah, but it's not because of valor or bravery or anything like that. (laughs) What steered you towards architecture in the first place? When I was a kid, I loved to draw, and I also loved understanding how things were put together. I really liked books that explained how to draw animals, you know, so when I was six or seven, starting to draw, I would rent these books from the library that would be like, here's a book on how to draw cats or dogs or people. I would just learn how to draw. And then I became more interested in how things were put together. And I would get books on anatomy or do you remember those Dave McCauley books like Castle or Pyramid or Cathedral? Yes. Yeah. So my mom bought all those for me when I was a kid and I would just look at those I played a lot with Lego, and I don't know, at some age, I just became really appreciative 
of the design aspect and thinking there's some buildings that are really beautiful and I would like to be able to do that someday. I think when I first learned about what an architect was, I was around 12. And when I learned that there's a profession of people who go out and design beautiful things, I thought, oh man, that's what I'm going to do. What was your impression of an architect? I mean, 12 is pretty early on to have an understanding of what an architect is and does. Well, my impression was that they had graphing paper and just drew buildings all day. That's a great vision. I love that. And Heather, I have worked very little at doing any kind of actual architecting. That is still basically my general impression of what architects do. (laughs) Don't bust my bubble. Yeah, I won't. I won't. You can find out for yourself when you're 40 or 42. Oh, yeah. Or you can still be an architect and do that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll be that kind of architect. (laughs) Did you think about other degrees that you could get, and architecture was one of those, and you chose architecture ultimately, or was architecture kind of always in the back of your mind since you were 12? I was really sure that I wanted to be an architect and that I was going to get an architecture degree. When I was choosing schools, I decided to apply to Texas A&M because... My dad had gone there. Actually, when I was growing up, he really didn't talk very much to me, at least about going to school there until I was about a senior in high school. And all I knew is that he had gone there. And so I looked to see if they had an architecture school. They did. And that was actually the only place I applied to. So I didn't really have a solid plan. I didn't research other schools or anything like that. I just thought, I'll try to go to this school. And if they let me in, I'll go there. That's very similar to me as well. That was my one place and one thing I was going to do. Yeah. Uh, Did you understand the difference between environmental design and an architecture degree? No, not at all. Also similar to me. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed my time at Texas A&M and I enjoyed all the stuff that I learned. Are you glad you chose that route rather than specifically architecture route? In terms of all the classes, I really enjoyed almost every class I took. The class that I enjoyed the most was the medieval cathedrals class and then the class where we studied, oh, uh, Broken Rococo. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think we share those two. Awesome. And we both have the minor in art and architecture history, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I'm very, very proud of that. I actually put that first in front of my bachelor's degree. No, really? Yeah, I said, this is my minor, and here's my bachelor. Wow, all right. That's what I advertise. That's good to know. I didn't know that. I probably not advertise as much as I should have. Oh, people think it's so cool when you tell them that. You say, I know a lot about Gothic cathedrals, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I almost forgot I got that until we yeah. started talking. Throw it out there. Put it on your business card. <laughs> yeah. And then, can you briefly describe what you do now? Here's what I do now. It's called Air Battle Management, and it's for the United States Air Force. And it's a very simple but very broad set of core competencies that are part of our trade. And basically what we do is we're part of command and control. What I do specifically is I'm an air battle manager on the E3 Sentry, which is also called the AWACS, and that stands for Airborne Warning and Control System. Essentially what that is is a Boeing 707 with a giant 30-foot radar dish on top and a lot of sensors and a lot of radios. And what they do is they send the AWACS into 
a contested area, or actually they could send us on a multiple of different types of missions, but typically what we're used for is to go into a contested area that doesn't have ground-based radar already set up to surveil the area and provide command and control. So they send us in to be kind of a gap filler, but we can also control a large area of battle space. And we talk to other airplanes, we talk to fighters, bombers, tankers, and we provide tactical control to them. And at the same time, we up-channel information being received from them to higher headquarters uh, so that our strategic leaders can make decisions. And our core competencies are fairly simple. And that's that's it in a nutshell, really. It sounds like you have to have great skills as a communicator and a manager. Yeah, and if I can give you a visual idea of what we do on the AWACS, I sit in front of a radar scope. It's called a situational display, and what it does is it presents to me the radar data that our radar is collecting and computing through our system. So it gives me a radar picture of the airspace in front of me, then I have a computer to augment or modify that information or to send information out. And then I have a bank of radios. I have four external radios that I talk on. I can roll different radios into that radio bank. Typically what we're listening to on a daily training mission is we'll go out and we'll control an airspace where we have, let's say, four blue F-15 simulating good guys and uh, four F-15 simulating the bad guys. And then we have a little mini war. Uh, we provide control to both sides of that. So we'll have a blue air controller and a red air controller. And we'll have both those frequencies in our radio bank. We'll also be listening to common frequency for safety or for information about what they're doing during the fight. And then in our fourth radio, we'll be monitoring or speaking with air traffic control. So a lot of what we do involves being able to listen and manage information that's coming simultaneously to you. And then being able to communicate to the assets that you're controlling. So if I'm looking at a radar picture from a bird's eye view, I need to be able to communicate that picture to the pilot sitting inside the F-15 because he doesn't have that bird's eye view. Mm -hmm. Part of our training is being able to learn basically another language and a set of code words, basically a new syntax to be able to communicate that picture to the pilots in the, in the aircraft that we're talking to. It sounds a lot like what architects do, actually, because you're taking, like you said, you get inundated with information, which is architects gathering all of the parts and pieces, listening to the client, listening to the different consultants, hearing what the client wants to put in the space and trying to gather information on those things. And then you're having to make decisions for these entities in a way that works for everyone and then be able to spit that back out in a form that can communicate like a drawing set to a contractor and how to build it. So you're basically doing that, but for a different field, which is really cool because I never thought about it like that. So would you say that some of those skills you picked up through your degree or have you been learning them in the field since it is a different field than architecture? It's a very systematic way of thinking, I guess, and it's got strategy involved and architects are creative strategists. So I see that a lot of similarities there. Yeah, you definitely have to be able to be a little bit creative, and you also have to understand the control syntax on how you're providing that picture to the other assets or the other pilots that you're communicating with. If I would be able to relate that back to something that I learned while I was at Texas A&M or when I was working for the architect in Dallas before I joined the military, 
it was being able to work in a decision-making process and have a decision-making rule that you follow to be able to come to a conclusion really quickly and then make a decision really quickly and then communicate that decision to somebody else really quickly, a comprehensible way. Yeah, for me as an architect, it took me a while, maybe longer than most, to feel comfortable making those decisions because ultimately they're decisions for other people. So I think I finally reached the point maybe a couple years ago where I'm fully comfortable and confident. But for you, decision-making is extremely important because it's, like you said, it's a battlefield. There's people's lives at stake. Architecture, it's not, there's not people's lives at stake. Well, you know, I wouldn't sell yourself short, right? <laughs> because uh, <laughs> that building has to stay built. It can't fall down, right? No, that's true. It has to be safe and habitable. And people have to be able to enjoy it, right? Like if you had made a mistake and somebody was going to live in that building for the rest of their lives. So making those decisions for somebody else is really important. Do you feel like you were good at that early on or you came to that through practice and years of doing what you do? No, I definitely wasn't good at it early on. (laughs) Something that's really been a good edifying tool or something that helps me learn how to communicate and make a decision is definitely being married. You know, communicating with my wife, Lindsay, every day and making decisions with her is definitely something that's taught me more than anything else how to do that. And then at work in the military, people expect you to be able to make a decision and communicate that decision in an effective way that leads other people to accomplish something. And I want to go back to, you mentioned your internship when you got out of school. Can you talk briefly about that time? Yeah. I worked with an architecture firm in Dallas, and it was a really small firm. It was just four of us. One of the guys in there was actually getting ready to go to grad school, and then it only became three of us. So it was the principal, another draftsman, and then myself for most of that summer. And it was great. I loved it. We were right north of downtown Dallas in a really cool area. We were in a really neat building. The boss would come in and he would catch us up on what we were doing and then he would catch himself up on what we were doing, you know, and say, okay, no, address this here or whatever. And uh, then he'd go out and he'd meet with clients all day long and then he'd come back and give us updates and work on it until it was time to go home and then come back the next day. When I first got there, most of what I did was build models. Which was really hard because when we built models in architecture school, it was mostly with cardboard and chipboard. And he wanted me to build a bunch of wooden models. Before laser cutting was a big deal. Yeah. So I did it with a little skill saw and I cut my thumbs open so many times. And and just like cut things at weird angles so that they looked really stupid and had to redo it over again. Most of our projects were really neat projects too. uh, Stuff that I'd be interested in doing myself. We would either work on really neat houses He also did a lot of churches in Texas, a lot of churches for Lutherans, Episcopalians, and and Methodists in Texas, and a lot of his churches are in Dallas. And actually, here's how I found him. I got out of school, and I was at home for a couple weeks after I graduated. I started looking for architecture firms in Dallas, and I just started calling them and said, hey, I just graduated. I'm about to go into the Air Force in six months. Will you hire me? And a lot of them were like, no. Um, But I found this guy's website. And when I opened up 
his page that showed the projects that he'd work on, I recognized all these buildings that he designed. Oh, yeah, because they were local churches. And the cool thing was is that all the buildings that he designed, I recognized and I liked them. And I thought, <laughs> oh, man, he did that? I've loved that building for years. So I called him up, and I think he was like the fifth or tenth person I called. I wasn't really sure if he'd say, yeah, come and work for me for the summer. But he did. And then he said, hey, can you come to my office on Monday and show me your portfolio? I said yes. And so I went to his office the next week and I showed him my portfolio. And he's like, great, can you show up tomorrow? So uh, that's how that happened. And it was awesome. I loved working for him and I loved working for us, the guys in the office. Well, I don't know if this is an accurate memory, but did he hand draw a lot? Yeah, he did a lot of hand drawing and sketches. We didn't really use that to present. You know, we drew everything in CAD, and that's primarily what we present. He tried to get me to learn Google SketchUp, and it couldn't be done. I couldn't learn it. Well, six so, months is not a very long time. And I honestly haven't tried since then, so. Yeah. Well, one of my memories of you was you getting really excited whenever you got to hand draw elevations or plans. Yeah, I love hand drawing. I still like to draw. I like to paint a lot, too. Yeah, so I think that when I finally get the chance to do things my way, I'm going to try and do that. So after your internship, you went to the military, and maybe talk a little bit about the last, I guess it's been nine years, probably? Yeah, 10 years. 10 years, okay. Yeah, so I graduated from Texas A&M in May, and then I worked in Dallas for about six months, and then I reported for active duty uh, that November. I'll just tell you a really funny story. When I reported, I showed up to the base where I was going to do my undergraduate training for air battle management, and that's uh, Tyndall Air Force Base, and it's in Panama City, Florida. So I drove to Panama City. I found an apartment that weekend, and then the next Monday, I showed up on base, and I was wearing civilian clothes. And my plan was just to get my ID card made. And I showed up to the office where they make ID cards, and I was wearing a sweater and some jeans. I said, hey, I'm brand new. I need my ID card. And they're like, why aren't you in uniform? And I said, well, I don't know that I have to be. And now, having been in for 10 years, (laughs) I just think, oh, man, I remember when I was a lieutenant and did stuff like that. Part of the joy of having been in the military for this long is just like seeing the new guys come in and and the stuff that they do and you're just thinking, yeah, I did all that too. And I started undergraduate training for Air Battle Management School pretty shortly after, and that took about 10 months, I would say, I was there, and maybe a little bit longer. So I learned the basics of what I would be doing as an Air Battle Manager. I won't talk too much about that, but I will say that while I was at Florida, I spent a lot of time learning how to sail small boats. And every weekend I would go and rent a little 10-foot sailboat and go sailing in the bay. And that's what I love most about living in that area. And then I started a band with a couple guys there. And we were called Shaker Dave and the Get Down Kids. Played some music. I think it was maybe the following November. I had to leave to go to a survival school. And that was in Spokane, Washington. That's where they teach you survival techniques. And typically all air crew will go to survival school, and depending on what kind of aircraft you fly, you'll either go to an easier or a harder survival school. 
I spent some time in Spokane. It's about a month long learning how to evade captors and eat stuff that you find. And it was really fun. And then after that, I moved to Oklahoma City for my first assignment. I lived down in Norman. And then I had to go through some more training where they teach you how to be an air battle manager on the AWACS. And that took, I want to say, maybe four months of a pretty rigorous training, a lot of flying. And then after that, I uh, graduated from that training and I went into my first operational squadron. Right about the same time, yeah, it was March in 2011 when the United States deployed to Libya. My parents were visiting with me for my birthday and I got a telephone call that weekend and it was a Saturday and they said, hey, you need to show up to work tomorrow on Sunday. We can't tell you what it's about, but bring everything that you need to deploy for an indefinite amount of time. So I told my parents, I said, hey, thanks for coming to visit me for my birthday, but I got to go to work tomorrow. So the next day we got there and they told us that we're going to deploy to Libya. We spent a day learning about what we're going to be doing. And then you know, half the day was spent going to the lawyer and filling out a will. That's crazy. Yeah, it was really weird for, uh, for someone at my age during that time. I hadn't even thought about that kind of stuff. Right. And then they said, okay, you're actually not going to go right away, but just be ready to go anytime this week. So you can go home. You don't have to show up to work this week until we give you a phone call. So I went back home, and then that week, I just kind of sat around the house. And then by about Wednesday of that week, I was getting really bored not doing anything. So I had started building these cabinets in my living room. I remember and, this. Yeah, this is a... this. Well, I'm not going to spoil the story. Well, so... Oh, you're right. And I was uh, I was building these cabinets, and I was using a palm router. I was making this cut, and then after I finished the cut, I was putting the router down, and I hit the button to turn it off, but the router bit was still spinning. And as I set it down, I hit my thumb. I don't remember feeling anything, but you know, it kind of gave you a little bit of a jolt, right? Yeah. But I hadn't realized what had happened. Oh. So I'm looking at this cut, you know, making sure that I cut it straight. I had realized, oh, I just hit my hand with the power tool. Maybe I should see if I'm okay. When I looked down, I saw this arc of blood on the floor and on the wall. And then I looked at my thumb, and it wasn't bleeding, but it looked cut. And so I pushed it with my finger. And it basically disintegrated, like like grated is what it looked like. It was really gross. Oh, I remember this story. And the worst thing was is, I wasn't married yet, you know, so I was living by myself, and I couldn't drive to the hospital, so I called my friend, and and he and his fiance came to pick me up, and they took me to the hospital and got it sorted out, but I wound up not going to Libya because of that. A couple months later, I was scheduled to deploy to the UAE, so I wound up going on that deployment. It was good that I didn't go to Libya, because in the meantime, that's when I had met Lindsay. And that's when she and I started dating. We dated for about a month before I went to my other deployment. We kept in touch while I was there. And then when I got back about a year later, that's when we got engaged. Yeah, I was there from July to Christmas time. Came back. And when I came back, the military put me through instructor training so that I could instruct air battle managers. And then I went from my operational squadron back to the training squadron where I had initially gone through training myself, and then I was an instructor there. That was around the same time that I was promoting from lieutenant to captain, Mm -hmm. and they put me in charge of a flight to be a flight commander. That was, so far, my favorite job that I've had. 
in the military. I was in charge of managing the training schedules for about 250 students that year. Wow. And typically I was in charge of about 70 students at a time as they were going through the syllabus. And I'll come back to this a little bit later as I'm going through the story. I finished that job in 2014. In 2013 is when Lindsay and I got married. We got married in October of 2013. It's basically the same week that we got married. We also found out that we were going to go to Canada for our next assignment. So Lindsay basically moved into the house in October. And then by about March, we were already packing stuff up to leave for Canada. I worked at the Canadian Air Defense Sector which is in North Bay, Canada, and that's about four hours north of Toronto if you're driving. And what that is, is it's an air defense sector that is part of the NORAD structure. So we basically do tactical control for assets that are under the NORAD mission. So we would be responsible for maintaining a surveillance picture of all of Canada and then reporting that picture to a... um, Air Operations Center, which was in Winnipeg. And then if there was any suspicious activity, they would scramble F-18s, and then we would provide tactical control to those F-18s to go intercept whatever was happening. That's basically what I did in Canada for the first year and a half. I was on a shift schedule. I worked on the operations floor, first as a controller, and then as a senior director, managing a team of controllers. And that was really fun. I loved it. I loved working with the Canadians. And I made a lot of friends up there. Then for the second year and a half, I got moved into more of a staff job where I was responsible to manage plans for the Canadian air defense sector. And we had projects that had to do with revising NORAD instructions, providing feedback to make exercises realistic for our training. Mm -hmm. And then we left Canada in April of 2018. 17, came back to Oklahoma. When I got back to Oklahoma, I went through training again to be requalified to fly in the AWACS. I deployed again in June for another five months or so back to the UAE. When I got back, I went from the operational squadron that I had been assigned to to an operational support squadron. And right now I'm working in that squadron supporting the other operational squadrons by basically doing the same thing that I did in Canada, taking projects and going through a process of deciding whether the tactics make sense for AWACS to integrate into these plans or not, and then coming up with some kind of way for that integration to happen, a standard. Yeah, so here's the part where I have to go back to why I liked that other job so much when I was at the training squadron. So when I got back to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma, I now got to see all of these people who used to be my students when I was the flight commander at the training squadron. And now they're all very smart and have surpassed me in uh, all this knowledge and experience, having come from this experience in Canada, which is so different from the AWACS background. Basically, you have to get caught back up. They're the ones that are doing that. It's just really neat to see where they are now. Yeah, because you're seeing the fruits of your labor You've had a pretty defined path, even though it sounds like you've done a lot of different things. I didn't even know it was all those things over the last 10 years. For me, for instance, I didn't know I'd start my own firm, and here I am starting my own firm. And I I couldn't have told you 10 years ago, 
where I would have been in 10 years, whereas you knew you were going to spend this chunk of time in the military, in the Air Force. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years, knowing that you've already had the last 10 defined? Originally, I didn't know that I was going to be in the military this long. My first plan was to join the military, do the minimum amount of time, then go out and then go into architecture, right? For my commitment, it would have been six years, not including the initial training that I had to go through. So it would have wound up being about seven and a half years. But what I found myself thinking when I reached that point was, I really like what I'm doing. And also, I don't think that I was ready to make that transition at that time. I mean, there's a lot of good things about being in the Air Force. And I just wasn't ready to transition out of it. So I decided with Lindsay to stay in just to see what would happen next. Our plan was, let's see what our next assignment is. And then when we found out it was going to be Tinker Air Force Base, I thought, okay, let's see what the next assignment after that's going to be. For my career progression at this point, the next thing that I'm competing for right now is to go to what's called developmental education. And it's an opportunity for me to get a master's degree with the Air Force. And the intent of them providing that to me is to form me into a person who could potentially be given the responsibility of being a squadron commander, and then after that, other command opportunities. Right now, actually it was due today, was the list of schools that I wanted to compete for. I submitted that today, and I'm going to be meeting a developmental education board over the next couple months, and then I'll find out in November if the Air Force is going to decide me to send me to go get my master's degree. That's what I'm looking forward to next. Okay. If I do get accepted, that school will last a year. And then typically what happens after you complete that education is that you go and work in a staff position for either a major command or a numbered Air Force command. I would like to compete for a joint staff assignment. I had such a good time working for the NORAD mission up in Canada that what I would like to be considered for is to work in a staff assignment that is either with NORAD or something that has to do with Homeland Security or National Security. That'll be a two-year assignment after the one-year master's degree. And then typically after that, you return back to operations, which means probably coming back to Oklahoma for another three-year assignment. And that would put me at around 16 years in. If I make it to 20 years at that point, that'll be the time that I think I'd like to make that transition back into architecture and start doing that. When you put in your list of schools, are you allowed to say where you selected? Actually, I think I was really lucky to have a really neat opportunity because it's not always available, but this year there's an opportunity to be selected to go to the George Bush School at Texas A&M. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that became my number one pick. My number two pick was to go to um, a school in Chile. Oh, that's far. Yeah. I'd also selected a school in Spain and then a school in Rhode Island. And then the fifth school that I selected was the Air Force School, which is in Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. My focus of interest is really that Homeland Security, NORAD, also kind of political military affairs. Is there a specific spot for that? It's pretty much centralized in Colorado Springs. Okay. But what I would like to do is either do something with a joint staff assignment or 
kind of interagency work. When you say that, is that in disciplines within the military? Interagency, can you describe that? What that means is in a military capacity, you're also working with other government agencies. So you could work with Department of Homeland Security, or you could work with the Department of State. So just working with those other agencies uh, to do other type of national security type stuff. Okay. Who has been a guide for you along the way, or who's been influential or pivotal to your path as you've gone through the military? I really had a great set of friends early on in the military who I've kept in touch with, and just kind of like having a set of people to, to talk about different things that you're stressed about, even if they think that you're kind of being annoying sometimes, <laughs> has been really helpful. When I was at the training squadron in that flight commander role, I had a really good set of people who I worked with there, especially I try to keep close contact with because they were a great set of friends. I've always had really good commanders who were very supportive and who would listen to what I was interested in doing with my career in the military and would find ways to support that and to point me in the right direction towards getting a, a better knowledge base of what I was interested in or towards getting me a better experience that would expose me to my interests mm-hmm. you know, so that I can make a decision on whether or not I wanted to continue to pursue that. My commander in Canada was amazing, and he really gave me free reins to make a lot of decisions. And, of course, he would support me with top cover if I was making a bad decision. He gave me a lot of trust, which I really appreciated, to make a lot of decisions on my own, whether they were good or bad. And I thought that was really helpful. It built a lot of confidence, obviously. And most importantly, has been Lindsay, because she definitely knows maybe not all the details of what I do at work, because so much is either unnecessary to explain or I can't talk about it because of security. But like, she definitely knows what I think about things and how I feel about things. And she helps me figure out a plan of I'm going to handle a situation that arises up at work or communicate something that I need to communicate the next day. And definitely a huge amount of encouragement. It's probably the most important thing. That's a good partnership. Yeah. There's two things that I would like to say. So the first thing, and I've been talking to Lindsay about this for a long time, is one of the most important things that I can think of is making a decision about what I would call my architecture firm when I get to that point. And I've noticed that you've come up with a really classy, very, uh, it's just the right name. It makes sense uh, with your personality. I don't know how to pronounce it. I thought you took French. No, no, no. I took Latin, which doesn't help me with French at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's pronounced Junus. And that means what? Youthful. I think that's just really classy, really indicative of your personality. And I think that's definitely the right name, the right way to go. And Lindsay and I have had the same conversation for years now. You know, we've joked about like, hey, knowing if I ever get to that point, what could I name my office? The one that we like the most is Amigos Architecture. I think you might have mentioned this before because it wasn't surprising when you said it. Since I've known you, which has been about almost 15 years now, you've had a lot of bands. I think one was called Rabbit Hole. Was there one called Rabbit Hole? It was called Wise Turtle. Wise Turtle, but it had a rabbit on the front. Yeah. And then all your cartoons, I think you have a good sense of humor that you don't take those things too seriously. So when you said Amigos Architects, that's not surprising of Sam. You can see that. Yeah. 
I think the one thing that's wrong about it, though, is that it doesn't have a, a mature class, right? No, I fiddled around with it. I thought maybe it'd be amigos with a greater than or equal sign in an architecture. Uh, or maybe just like amigos de architectura. You know, <laughs> friends of architecture. But I'm definitely pretty settled on something close to that. All right. I think that's great and it's catchy. It's memorable. And most people know how to spell it. I think that's been the most challenging thing with Juness. The other thing I wanted to say was I'm really impressed and also really encouraged to see what you're doing. That's really neat to have a friend who's doing what you're doing. You know, I see other friends striking out there and making bold decisions. It's just really neat to see a group of people who are doing that at our age. Because I know it takes a lot of courage and a lot of know-how, a lot of confidence, and also a stick-with-itness. You know, to do something that you've always wanted to do and then do it your way. So I think that's really neat. Like I said, it's very impressive and very encouraging. That's one of the things I really liked about Texas A&M is that it's more of an unspoken curriculum. They set you up to have a resourcefulness about yeah. your career that I think makes it a well-rounded degree more than a typical architecture degree. I think. And that may be just a mentality for the school in general, but I find a lot of, like what you're saying, I totally resonate with and that a lot of our colleagues have a stick with itness that gets them places and they're fun places to observe. Yeah. When you've talked, I've thought about your comics. Do you still do your comics? Do you still illustrate? <laughs> I was deployed last year and on my deployment, I was going with a lot of people who were younger than I was on my crew. And a lot of people were deploying for the first time as well. And what I noticed was right around the two-month mark is where people just kind of realize, oh, you know, I'm so far away from home and I'm only halfway done. You know, and that's in our career field. There are some people who deploy a lot more often and for a lot longer than we do. I'm very proud of those people and, and I know that's very hard. With the crew that I went out there, I just noticed like a lot of people were getting down around the two-month mark and then around the three-month mark, a lot of people were getting even salty is the word that we use, right? Oh, yeah, that's a good visual. Yeah, at that point, I thought this would be a great time to figure out some way to boost morale. So I started drawing a comic out there, and my plan was to sneak it in to these binders that we take on our jet whenever we go fly. So I went to the chief who was in charge of the office who gives us our daily brief. I said, hey, do you mind if I draw a comic and sneak it in these binders? And he goes, yeah, I don't care. I did that, and I put it in the binders for these crews. When we went to go fly, uh, we flew a mission one night and then we came back. The comic was posted on the wall of the office for everybody to see. And people just said, that was awesome. Are you going to draw some more comics? I said, yeah, I've got like five more in my pocket. I started doing comics while I was out there and a lot of people liked them. I'm sure a lot of people thought that they were stupid, which is fine. But it was definitely really fun and it was kind of cool because we got to draw things to laugh at stuff that actually happened to us. You know, that's what they were about, was uh, stuff that was actually happening. And a lot of people resonated with that and thought it was really funny. That was really encouraging to see people like that. So, Is that why you do comics? As long as I've known you, you've always done them. And I don't know how early on you started doing them. I think it's fun to be able to draw something and represent something in a certain way that I want to have it represented. 
So like if I drew a bad comic, I wouldn't be proud of that. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in high school just sketching stuff. I actually had a comic in our high school newspaper as well. But I think the reason why I really wanted to draw comics was a little bit selfish. Like I wanted people to know how I thought about something. And I was hoping that they would think that it was funny, but also there's something serious about it that I get. I understand what Sam's thinking about this. Like I would always make them funny. I don't think I ever made something that was doleful or anything like that, but it'd be something funny about a serious point that I was thinking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lighthearted spin on something serious. Yeah. They always had an underlying seriousness to them. I remember. But you were always really good about sharing them, promoting it, which I really like seeing how you were just like, here you go. Here's me. (laughs) That's really funny. Well, because that for me doesn't come natural. And I wish I was better at sharing things I create. And sometimes I like to keep them for myself in a weird way. Like I'm almost the opposite where I like creating things and then hoarding it rather than it just should be shared. Well, I think that's because I'm naturally non-confrontational. I want to tell somebody how I think about something without talking to them about it, you know? Yeah. Passive aggressive commentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I don't want you to tell me what you think. Yeah, I don't want feedback. <laughs> yeah. I do love talking about stuff. The thing is, is that I know there's so many things that I think about that, you know, I could get in a conversation with somebody and it just wouldn't be a pleasant conversation. I'm having these conversations with somebody by letter right now. Mm-hmm. It's a good friend of mine. We've been talking about some things that both of us disagree about. And every time I see him in person, oh, we talk about the things that we disagree about in a very gentle and loving way. I think that's what you're supposed to do. If you're going to have a conversation with somebody about something that you disagree about, it's fine if you both disagree. The intent shouldn't be necessarily to persuade someone to your viewpoint. I don't think so. I think the intent should be to seek the truth wherever it's found. You know, it could be you, it could be me. If you know something is true, if you have that conviction that it's true, then you're not persuading them to your viewpoint. You're persuading them to the truth that has already made itself manifest to you. I think that, like, if I can do that in a comic, you know, it's in a gentle and a loving way instead of, you know, just being very direct and confrontational about it. I'd rather do that. And then if we get in a conversation about it, then that's great, too. Yeah. It's funny it came full circle because you used conviction again. I wanted to ask the fairy word as a silly icebreaker, but also as a serious conversation about, maybe some people did this, maybe some people didn't, but search long and hard for the word that best described them because you only get the one word. And it's a silly question, but also a very serious conversation. Wasn't wasn't yours fluid? Mine was vibrant. Vibrant, vibrant. Mm-hmm. If I could ask you a question. Yeah. You know, you may have like a, a self-interview where you do this and you describe it to people in this series, but um, how did you come to the point where you decided to start your own office and do things that way? So I've been at six firms, which is a lot over the last 10 years, and it's been a variety. I've worked at small firms, I've worked at large firms, so I've seen office culture and I've touched almost every project type there is. I got to a point where I looked around and said, There's a lot of exciting things happening, but not any more exciting than what I feel like I could do or create. So it got to a point where my options of, okay, I could go to another firm and it'll be fun in a different way. I'll face a lot of different challenges, but 
I got to a point where they were becoming the same challenges and that there's always something. And if there's always going to be some issue you have with a firm or a practice that it's going to be there, it's going to exist, but I would like a little more say in, in those aspects and try and, and be more of a problem solver with those challenges than I was able to be. There's only a certain amount of ownership for me that I could feel for a project that I didn't either a, I didn't get the work and bring it into the office and have the relationship with the client all the way down to as simple as how we structured our deadlines you know, so there's a lot of decision making that I felt left out of that I felt capable of performing. And I'm a person that likes to continually challenge myself. And I was having a hard time doing that fully when I was filling a position on a firm. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah, I'm curious to see where you go. I'm really excited. I think it's a really neat project. Thanks. I wrote this down a year ago, and I thought it was going to be a book. I thought I was going to interview everybody, and it was going to be written. So that makes me think of two quick memories that I'll share. One, and both of these have to do with you. Uh, <laughs> okay. The first one, I don't know if you remember this. I don't remember the context of this idea happening, but uh, I do remember the idea, and that was to make a book about, it'd be a picture book about uh, common idioms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think about that all the time. Yeah. yeah that's so <laughs> Every time I hear an idiom, actually, I think about how it's going to be illustrated. <laughs> yeah, 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 the book of illustrated idioms, right? Yep. Um, yeah, I thought about that a lot. And actually, uh, when I came back to Tinker, I ran into somebody who I'd worked with before. Her family is Vietnamese. Uh-huh. And while we were deployed, she had said something to me. Um, and I said, don't be a wet blanket. She had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and I thought, where's my book of illustrated idioms so I can explain this to you? <laughs> um, well, so, and did I tell you that was a lot of the inspiration for that was because I learned that in foreign languages, that's the last thing you, to really get fluent, those are the last pieces because they're nonsensical. Yeah. I only know one foreign idiom, and it's Spanish. What is it? I'm not going to do a very good job pronouncing <laughs> it, but it's a... Trabajando de gallo de grillo, which means you work from the rooster to the cricket. Your workday starts when the rooster crows, <laughs> and it ends when the crickets start chirping. <laughs> that one makes sense. That yeah. one makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, that's funny. And then the other memory that I have of you, I think this was either junior or senior year, but you started doing this exercise where you try it and tell a whole story within like 300 characters or 180 characters. <laughs> I don't I remember, remember this one. No. What were yeah. the stories? This was my idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was senior year because I remember this happening or or whatever year it is that we do uh, COSI 2. It was in the big lecture hall and I remember always sitting in the back and falling asleep. And, I wasn't going to uh, share my memory that memory I had of you. Why? But she falling asleep a lot in class. Yeah, I had like a lot of pin stains on my pants because I don't want to fall asleep. <laughs> But um, it was this exercise that you had where you would try and tell a complete story and you would limit yourself on the amount of words that you could use. I think, like, max, it was only 150 words. Okay. That was the goal. And I wrote a couple of them, too, and I still have the ones that I wrote. Man, um, I wish I – I don't know if I have any. I'll find them and email them to you. I would love but to I see I just them. remember that exercise, and I thought, oh, that is so cool. And it's also 
very prescient to what Twitter became. No. <laughs> See, I'm continually frustrated because I have so many ideas like this, and I can't figure out how to get them out or like what the application would be. Like what I ha- what I do is I have the idea and then I let it drop, which is not yeah. bad. They just kind of fall from the tree and then they're they're forgotten. <sighs> I always think it's because architecture is like a long game. A lot of things I do are like long-term efforts and I can't add another long-term effort to the few things that I enjoy and already do. And so I let these pieces of fruit drop and rot and disintegrate and I can't carry them out, you know? You need a lackey to <laughs> a lackey. get a classroom ID <laughs> and just say, hey, execute this idea and then I'll criticize it. Well, for a while I was trying to write them down in like notes on my phone, but I still don't know what I would do with them. Like, you have to have, there's no, there's not enough hours in the day. Yeah, I've only had one really good idea over the past two years, and it was an idea for an app on your phone, a human voice that would speak to you, and the app would be called, What Am I Doing? And what you'd do is you'd hit the button, and you'd ask the app what you were doing, and it would just state the obvious, and that was it. And I thought that that would be such a fun app to have, and it would never never get old. <laughs> so would it have access to your camera and mic then so that you could like you could set it up and dance and then say what am I doing and it would know it wouldn't be that complicated I mean it could be that complicated you know, but I was just thinking like hit the button and say uh, what am I doing and you'd say well uh, you're speaking into your phone and you know, you're standing you know wherever you were you know? <laughs> but then when I thought about it more you know so that was the initial idea but when I developed it I thought you could ask that, what am I doing? And then it would tell you what you're doing, but then it would provide the broader context, like, you know, this is also happening within 10 feet of you, you know, within, you know, two square miles, you know, this just happened, you know, incorporate yeah. the news into your two-mile radius of where you're standing, you know, so you could be more involved about what was happening in your surroundings. And it could say, and Theodore Roosevelt also stood here in 1852. Yes! <laughs> you did it! Yes. We should collaborate more. Like, when we do do the idiom book, I think we should do that together. I honestly think about that all the time because, you know, sometimes I'll hear American idioms and I'll think, okay, I know what it means, but how did that become the standard saying for describing about whatever it is? Yeah. My mom ended up giving me a book that tells the story behind phrases like uh-huh. that. And But the funny thing is about the book, right? They only did, I mean, it's uh, an inch and a half thick. So there's only so many in there. Every time I have one and I actually reference this book, it's never in there. <laughs> I'm ready to collaborate anytime. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me. Yeah, I think it's a really neat project, and I'm, I'm yeah. glad you're uh, having fun with it. Well, thanks for sharing your story. Yeah. Well, have a good okay. rest of your evening, you and well. hopefully we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Good luck, Heather. All right. Thanks. Bye, Sam. Bye. Sam has led an interesting journey doing air battle management for the U.S. Air Force, which requires precise communication to scramble pilots effectively and broad systems thinking to operate radio banks and relay information simultaneously to different parties, all things that architecture school skills would help with. I'm excited to see where Sam ends up next. Stay tuned for next week's episode where I interview an architect and musician in New York City. Next time on 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. Thanks for listening.